I say to my folks all the time, I have no shame for you. We're this. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about fixing what's happening right now. We're going to make a plan. We're going to implement a plan. We're going to get you back on your feet, but do not take any shame from me. Keeping yourself motivated takes work. If you don't work out your body, you get fat. If you don't work on your motivation, you become unmotivated. Welcome to the Motivational Voice Podcast, your source for inspiration and motivation to achieve your goals, empowering you one word at a time. Umar Jang is an author and a blogger, and he will get you motivated to do whatever you need to do. This is Motivational Voice Podcast, and this is Umar Jang. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Motivational Voice Podcast. This is session number 16. Today, I am interviewing Judge Sean Florkey, who presides over a treatment court, which is where someone who struggles with substance abuse might be sent to get help rather than being sent to jail. So in lieu of going to jail, they actually get sent to treatment so that they can get the help they need. Now, don't dismiss this episode just because you yourself don't have any issues with substance abuse. I say this because the information and advice that are shared in this episode are something that I think everyone needs to hear especially given the growing reports of people struggling with addiction across the country and even across the world. You may not have any concerns yourself about addiction, but you may know someone in your circles that is struggling with substance abuse or some sort of addiction. Now, this is a longer episode than you normally would see on this podcast, but believe me when I say that it is worth every single minute and you will learn something after listening to it. Without further ado... Let's listen to my interview with Judge Sean Florkey from the 6th Judicial District in Duluth, Minnesota. Well, Sean, again, thank you very much for coming to the podcast and for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, would you please introduce yourself to, to our listeners? Sure, sure. And thanks for having me, Omar. This has been, this has been good, to, good to follow and good to do. Um, I'm Sean Flurkey. I'm a uh, judge up in um, Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, we are, we, um, everything up here. I've been on the bench about 13 years. Um, so we do criminal, civil, the whole work. Um, I think what I'm kind of known for and what I've done a lot of is uh, what we call treatment courts or drug courts and intervening with folks with substance use disorders and trying to help them patch life back together. So um, I have five kids. We have a full and busy life. Uh, it's a good life. Thank you. And uh, sp- uh, speaking of, of treatment courts, uh, you, you have a, a unique and interesting position, uh, like I said, as a judge. Uh, can you tell us more about what um, what that entails, uh, the, just what you do on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Yeah. It. I think the the theme behind being a judge in Minnesota or anywhere else, uh, for that matter, is volume. You know, we have, and it's not that it, crime is dropping across America. That's a whole another podcast. But um, we just have a high volume of cases. So you spend 
day in and day out, seeing people and uh, dealing with cases. And that can be anywhere from a criminal trial to a civil trial to child protection to divorces. Um, So day in and day out, you're in the courtroom and handling cases, having hearings, listening to attorneys, listening to parties. A lot of folks uh, can't afford lawyers, so they're in there um, talking on their own and trying to figure out a kind of complex system on their own, and we try and help uh, those folks. Uh, So I'd say day in and day out is courtroom and um, trying to to, um, help people understand the process and work through the process um, to the right result as best you can. And it winds up being a pretty people-intensive work. You know, I think people kind of have this view maybe way back in the day that judges sat back in their offices smoking a cigar and thinking lofty thoughts. And uh, that is not the work. Um, You know, you're dealing with volume and people and intense situations and sad situations and terrible situations and also some neat stuff too. You know, you kind of have to pay attention to to keep track of the neat stuff and the wins. But um, so it's a real varied work. It's challenging. It's um, volume. It's intensity. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, well, it's demanding, um, but rewarding at the same time. So each day is different, but the themes are kind of the same. Okay. So there's more to it, to being a judge than just what people might, might expect. But you, you yeah, are, yeah. Yeah, so, but you are a, an avid biker. Uh, you bike to and from work. Uh, I think last time yeah. I heard, heard you, you, you still are doing that. How, how did that come about? I am. You know, it's funny. I, I started, it's maybe nine or ten years ago, and I started biking. Remember when gas hit $3 a gallon? It was, yeah. you know, early summer. And I thought, you know, I'll just bike to work and save a little money. And, um, I live up on on the west side of Duluth, up on up on the hill, um, right below Skyland. And I biked to work, which went okay because most of it was downhill. <laughs> and um, and then I biked home, and I nearly died. Uh, it was horrible. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm just going to stick with this. And it took a couple weeks to build up um, kind of the conditioning to climb the hill, going home well. Uh, and, and then what happened was I just, I, I kept doing it that summer and I started to realize that um, uh, other, other rewards were kind of sneaking up above saving a few bucks. Um, and I, I realized honestly that I was a better dad when I got home on days I biked than I didn't. And I realized it was helping me burn off um, the stress and kind of the to use a fancy term, maybe the vicarious trauma or secondary trauma of the stories and impacts of the work. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I started to feel this secondary benefit, which actually became one of the primary benefits. And then I started realizing, well, I'm getting in better shape here. Um, I literally climb four, five, six hundred, depending on whether it's summer or winter, even up to 700 feet to get home. Um, and I'd always been a winter guy, you know, winter camped and ice fished and snowshoe and ski. And I thought, you know, I bet I can do this all winter. Uh, so I slowly 
started getting gear and not fancy gear, but just kind of layer gear, you know, um, nylon wind pants and heavy mittens and stuff like that. And then I bought some studded tires and I just kept going. And that's been nine or 10 years. And it's honestly been, and you know this from, you know, life changing and motivation. It's honestly been become one of the hallmarks of who I am and how I can do the work uh, because I'm, it, it's I'm outside every day. Uh, I acclimate really well. Uh, in the summer, I get to mountain bike two thirds of the way across the top of uh, the hill up in Duluth. I mean, I'm literally in the woods, riding in my city to work every morning and every night. It's just gorgeous, um, and it keeps me in good shape. It helps me manage my stress. It keeps my uh, blood pressure low. My heart rate is resting heart rates like 49 or 50, you know, so it's, it's been this really wonderful holistic thing for me that I just, I just kind of dumbly stumbled into. Uh, the, the winter can be grim, you know, riding when it's 15, 20 below or riding home and climbing that hill when you can't get enough air into your lungs to make it work can be grim. Um, but I figure I'm just not going to quit, you know, um, it's been a really, it's been a really uh, neat thing to stumble into. And then you get all these points that you're, you're that crazy judge. Don't mess with him. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if, that's kind of fun. Yeah. If a judge can, can do that in the, the bold, cold winter of Minnesota, uh, don't mess with him. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. It's it, funny. It's just been wonderful. I, I, you know, and I did never thought this 10 years ago, but I would never take a job. Um, and live in such a situation that I couldn't bike. That's just become a benchmark of who I am and, and how how I how I can do, you know, kind of perform at the level I want to perform at. Yeah, that's 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 wonderful. Uh, it's funny. Uh, just a, on a side note, we just had the Super Bowl here in Minnesota, and uh, people yeah. who came in did not expect. They were told that Minnesota was cold, but we had the coldest Super Bowl ever. And people were right. talking about the cold. We didn't realize how cold it was in Minnesota, and uh, um, so they. It was interesting to see people buy winter gear that weren't prepared, and uh, um, it yeah. was, you know, it was great to see all that. And uh, but anyway, uh, bike to work. I think is the is the message here. You could do a lot of things. At yeah, the same yeah, time. exactly. Back when I was, I, we do in the districts, as you know, you're, there are chief judges and I was chief judges for my four year chief judge for my four year term a bit ago. And one of the chief judges obligations or duties is to decide when to close the buildings because of bad weather. And people, people would say, he's never going to close the building. He bikes to work. <laughs> Which was true. I never closed the building. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. 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 Right. Now, uh, in your line of work, you often come in contact with uh, people fighting with uh, addiction or substance abuse. What do you think pushes people to, to gravitate towards uh, using substances to the point of, of addiction? Yeah, that's a, that's a great great complex question um i think i think the you know one of the kind of cliches or um misnomers in american thought is it 
it's all about the substance that if you try X or Y or Z, you'll get hooked. Um, and the research shows that's pretty much categorically wrong. Um, 20% of folks who use any substance wind up developing problematic use around those substances. It isn't primarily about the substance, it's about the person. Um, and, 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 you know, there are, there are genetic factors. There are, um, certainly, um, kind of factors about your family. And, you know, if you're raised in a, in a, uh, home where, uh, folks are, are struggling with substances, you're more likely to have trouble. Um, it's a learned behavior, you know, exposure can become problematic. Uh, but one of the, one of the, there's a, there's a Canadian doc named Gabor Matei, um, who has done a lot of research and thinking about these issues. And, and I think his voice is, is particularly, um, helpful. He, he talks about, um, substance abuse, um, substance use disorders as being about pain and look for trauma and pain. The, 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 the substances we abuse are often painkillers, um, even prescribed painkillers, right? You think of opioids, et cetera. Um, and, and so he doesn't say, he says, don't ask why the addiction ask why the pain. Um, and often, often, and it's not categorically true, you know, nothing is 100%, but you, you start digging in a little bit and a lot of folks um, who are developing problematic behaviors around any substance um, it can be, uh, you, can, you can dig a little bit and find some pain and find some um, something that that substance or that behavior is helping regulate and then it becomes problematic uh the 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 use cycle gets to be that it isn't that you're using that substance or that behavior to get high or feel good it's that you've gotten to a point where you're you're required to use that substance to get up and get going or to feel normal or to not feel sick. I mean, the, the curve switches over to use being about trying to maintain as opposed to trying to medicate or make life more fun or whatever. You know, and we, and we also talk a lot about substance abuse um, where there's there's other kind of, there's behavioral um, addictions that, that run the same kind of same kind of pathways in our brains and in our hearts and souls and lives. Um, it can be shopping, it can be internet, it can be porn, it can be gambling, it can be, you know, there's a lot of, there are people who, you know, eating disorders, it's not just substances that we have troubles with. Um, so it's, I find it helpful to ask, is there some pain here? Is there some trauma here? Is there some separation, some brokenness? Some, and then, and then help folks find ways to kind of connect with and, and work through some of that um, as opposed to just screaming about, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Don't do, you know? Yeah. Um, so in other words, it's complicated. There's people come at it a lot of different ways, but often that's a helpful way to look at it. I think. 
Okay. So in other words, there is sometimes some underlying reason why the person is doing what they're doing, um, whether it's, uh, like you said, uh, there's maybe they were abused as a child or they had a rough background or maybe even stress um, coming from yeah. war or um, a number of things. Yep. Yeah, yeah stress, environment. Um, you know, a, a, a good example that, that people have been talking about for a long time was the the Nixon and the war on drugs kind of came around responsive to soldiers in Vietnam. Um, and a, a lot of folks were going over there and having um, real addictive and terrible behavior around heroin. Um, and the fear was these, these guys were coming back, these men and women weren't coming back and that, that, we were going to have a profound problem with those folks and heroin and addiction. And what, what actually came about was that a, a huge percentage of them came back and stopped with no problem um, or very little problem. Turns out when they weren't in a jungle in a war, heroin didn't have as much draw and press and um, utility in their lives. When you brought them back to their family, their connections, their work, the school, VA benefits, uh, people tended to kind of move away from the substances. It was a, a massive environmental change that, that helped them out a ton. Um, another example, there's a guy who um, created, he called it rat park and he did a lot of testing around um, rats and uh, problematic use with, I think he was using cocaine and um, he put rats in uh an isolation spot and gave them the choice between uh, fluid with cocaine in it and fluid with nourishment in it. And I'm being a little broad, you folks could look it up, but, but the gist of it was that they could choose to, to medicate with some cocaine or not. And the rats that were um, in a, in a cage alone tended to hit that pretty hard. You brought them out and put them in a different cage with other rats and food and stuff to play with and move around and um, created a better environment. They're much less likely to hit on the hit on the substance. Um, we we tend to view in America uh, problematic substance use or behavior as a character issue, um, as a as a fundamental choice issue. A lot of what the research says is if you look at environment, you look at history, you look at connection, um, if you can start making changes with folks and for folks in those areas, um, you can see some some good resolution and progress much quicker than you can by shaming people, blaming people, telling them um, they've made bad choices and that they're bad people, you know. Um, so there's real hope in in kind of looking at it more broadly and taking a maybe a deeper look. Yeah, yeah. Now, how does someone end up in, in treatment court? What is the, the process at a, at a high level? Does everyone... you you got to earn it, and nobody wants to earn it. Um, the research has shown when we started out with treatment courts, uh, we kind of thought we should take first-time folks, easy folks, Um, and all the research has shown that that tends to be wrong. 
Um, treatment court is an intensive intervention, right? Um, you are you are getting monitored at the highest level of probation we can imagine. You're being tested all the time. Um, you're calling in daily. You've got a monitoring device. I mean, we are in your business. We are in your home. We are monitoring you like crazy. And you also are getting a heavy-duty treatment track, right? Maybe inpatient, certainly intensive outpatient. Lots going on. Um, turns out if I do that to folks who are first-timers, who are working, doing pretty well in the community, I mess them up. You can over-treat and you can over-supervise. The same thing is true if you do it the other way. If you take somebody who is in real need and has real risk and you under-treat them, under-monitor them, they didn't, don't do well either. What the research has shown consistently is that folks who should be getting this intervention are high risk, meaning they're, they're very, very, very likely to reoffend, um, and they're high need, meaning they have significant and serious substance abuse issues. So the way you get into a treatment court that's doing its homework and knows what it's doing is they screen you and can show objectively and know objectively that you are high risk and high need. And a good treatment court that screens you and finds that you're low risk or low need um, or, you know, any combination there that isn't high risk, high need should say, no, thanks, you don't fit here. Here's a different track for you. It isn't that we're not going to intervene. It's that we're going to figure out how to, how to right size and right fit our intervention so we don't make you worse, right? Um, so typically what you're going to see is somebody who's had a number of prior uh, brushes with the law, arrests, stuff like that. The research on my court shows that the people who do the level, let me be careful to say it right, the more prior arrests you have, the better, the better you do in my court. Um, and the research across the state and across the country is that if we take in those folks with very few priors, we can make them worse. Um, so you're going to have priors, you're going to have involvement. Um, and you're going to have significant substance abuse issues. You will likely have gone through and not completed um, treatment in the past. You've had other interventions. So, so to get into my court, you really got to work at it. And, and it's, you know, my folks, I do take um, DWI offenders driving on intoxicated offenders. Typically, my folks, this is their fourth arrest for a DWI within 10 years, their felony level, they have a lot of involvement, which is not to say we're not interviewing at all levels of the of the continuum and, and working on every level, first timers on up. It's to say to be in this kind of intensive intervention, you're gonna be high risk, high need. Um, when you say um, they have to work at it to get in your corridor, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's probably a bad way to say it. You got to be really struggling. You have to have, you've 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 had multiple arrests. Our prior interventions haven't worked. You've shown yourself to be a, a real danger to yourself and and perhaps others. Um, again, if we took this level of intensity and did it with all first timers, it'd cost you millions and millions of dollars. We couldn't sustain it and. Two out of three first-time DWI offenders never come back. They self-correct. 
so you'd be you'd be intervening in a way that that is much too high for for those folks um, and you'd make them worse you know say for instance that I decided that Umar should be in my court tomorrow and ordered you to do um, inpatient treatment for 90 days and then move into a halfway house for another 120 to 180 days um, probation is going to be in your business every single day. You're going to come in for UAs every day. You know, how would how would your employer view that? How would your family? You know, I'd be I'd be putting an intervention on you that that fits somebody else and would would be incredibly destructive to the the great things that are going on in your life. You know. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I haven't considered that. If you take a, a regular person who messed up a couple of times and all of a sudden they have to to go to um, <clears throat> ua uh, by the way ua is i think stand for urinalysis ut- where they have to be in a yes bed. sorry i always do that yeah oh, no, that, that's fine that's we always kind of get used to uh, using acronyms in our line of work and mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. of nature so but yeah you're right i didn't think about that you would be people would be losing their jobs and it would be very destructive to the economy and to families yeah it's a good yeah point. it it could it it would just crush most folks um and and if if you're in a situation where you know almost all of my folks come into my court from point of arrest um and life is not working um life is a mess and so a level of intensity actually connects with my folks and starts giving them some some structure some support some um, accountability that actually helps over time bring life back together. Whereas if I if I put it on your life or my life, it it derail all the great things we have going. There's a there, and there's a quote uh, from Gabor Mate as well and other folks um, that is helpful when you think about responses. Um, the opposite of addiction is connection. Um, and, and when we think about that, and, you know, it's certainly the, the rat park, the rat sitting alone in the, in the dark cage, uh, choosing the cocaine versus being out in a, a community and connection. And um, the opposite of addiction is connection. And if I could figure out ways to, to bring connection with healthy resources, healthy folks, um, healthy life stuff, um, people tend to start to come alive, right? But if I throw you in jail for six months, throw you in um, intensive treatment when you don't need it for six months, I'm breaking. I'm I'm, I'm severing the the great connections you have in your life. Um, so, it, yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, how does the court help these individuals overcome addiction? Do, do you think? What do you think helps someone overcome addiction? What I tell it's it's that it's that connection piece is is huge, um, and it and it and nobody's that's you know one size doesn't one size fits one. So everybody who comes in gets an individualized, truly individualized treatment and assessment and life plan. Um, we're looking at every domain of life. Um, uh, medical care. Um, a lot of our folks come in 
with part of what the substance abuse has been, has been um, self-medication or self-management of mental health issues. Um, We have a lot of folks with, you know, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, you know, mental health stuff that's been um, present and active for a very long time, but has been uh, they've been attempting to deal with it through through substance and behavior issues. Um, housing, it's really hard. It's really hard to be um, sober and abstinent and living well when you're when you're couch surfing with other using folks or whether you're living out of your car or um, it, you know you can't get a job, you can't support. Um, hooking people up with education and, and job training and stuff like that can be super important. Um, you know, going to a job, the, the fulfillment of a job, the meaning of a job, the ability to support you and uh, support your family has powerful implications for folks. Um, treatment, 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 uh, figuring out what level of treatment somebody needs. We rarely, honestly, rarely use inpatient treatment. Um, we, we use intensive outpatient treatment so that you're working on your recovery, your sobriety in, in your context. I'm not knocking inpatient treatment, um, but it's not the end all be all for every person who walks in the door. And I think ultimately there, there are a couple of words that the treatment folks use that I think are, are really profound and and courts need to understand this and it's not our language inherently um it there's there's an idea it's called uh, compliance versus adherence um when you come into my court you're looking at you know my folks are looking at four five six years in prison potentially i have a lot of ability to make people comply right i have them on probation five or six years i we demand that they give us urine to test it's super invasive right so i can get compliance um compliance ends when i'm gone so the only the only the only way this works then is if i have everybody move into our house and keep everybody forever right if if what i'm looking for is compliance the treatment idea is that compliance is good to get started there's actually good results from mandated treatment. Um, But what we're looking for is adherence. And it's this idea that you're no longer living your sobriety or, or sorry, you're no longer living in sobriety because the judge is threatening you or you're scared of the consequences or you don't want to go to jail or you don't want to lose your job. You're living in sobriety and recovery because it's what, what you desire. We've been able to help you find within your life, your soul, your heart, your mind, however you want to say it, the desire and the motivation to live in recovery, right? And and everything we're doing, ev- literally everything we're doing is designed around that point where this becomes not about you doing what the judge is telling you to do but you doing what you choose and want to do in order to live a beautiful life, right? And it's that switch. It's that, you know, and I, we get folks, folks always talk about 
you know, is somebody motivated? Are they ready to change? Have they hit bottom, et cetera? I, we paid no attention to that anymore, none. Um, I assume that everybody coming in probably doesn't want to be there and would like me to leave them alone. But um, when we work with folks, give them support, give them accountability, give them treatment, give them treatment providers that they can form a strong alliance with, um, then you're looking to to help them find that internal motivation um, in order to to live better and embrace the solutions and tools that are out there, right? Yeah. So when somebody, and then you know that it's still hard. I mean, you know, people want to lose 30 pounds. They desperately want to lose 30 pounds. It's still very hard just because yeah. you want to do it. Doesn't, you know, then you've got to start working on daily plans and action triggers and, and, you know, accountability and it's still very hard. Right. Yeah, is coming true. from, from my life as opposed to the, the external system. Right. right um, yeah. I think that's the, the true heart of it is give everybody, give a massive amount of holistic resources, but be looking for that, that shift from a compliance mentality to an adherence mentality. Now, do you have a, a unique approach for helping people who find themselves in, in a treatment program uh, in, in your courtroom? Yeah, I think I do. I, I think, yeah, I use that word alliance. Um, the research shows that, that there are any number of treatment modalities that can work, right? From workbooks, to cognitive behavioral, to dialectical behavioral, to talk therapy, to groups, right? There's a lot of different, there's a lot of different ways to help people. But one of the fundamental, one of the fundamental markers of treatment that actually works is alliance, which is, um, is the connection between treatment providers and the, the client. It's literally that. It's this idea of respect mutuality, shared goals, place of safety. Um, and, and that's, that's the treatment realm. And they talk about Alliance all the time that a fair number of there's a school of thought called feedback informed treatment, where every time a client comes in, one of the things that a treatment provider is assessing from the client is how are we doing in terms of our connection here? How are we doing in terms of our alliance? Is this working for you? Um, I think that idea, alliance, has to be shared throughout a, a treatment court team, including the judge. Um, I think what I bring to bear in the courtroom, day in and day out with folks, is this idea of alliance, that I'm treating you with respect, we're developing shared goals, um, and we have some mutuality back and forth, and that's a that's a that's a scary, radical, weird idea in the criminal justice world, right? It doesn't mean that that you get to call the shots and drive your vehicle drunk. You're going to jail. You're going to prison. You know, there's there's boundaries there. But what it means is that that my folks understand that that my heart for them, my goal for them, everything I'm putting my energy into and all my team is putting their energy into is their success, right? Their success so that, so that 
we are forming an alliance with boundaries, with expectation, all that, um, but trying to figure out how to support our folks. And that's different. You know, what's that mean when you're a probation officer? What's that mean when you're a prosecutor? What's that mean when you're a defense attorney? What's it mean when you're a victim advocate? You know, but all of us have to translate those principles into what we're doing. Uh, So, and, and that, for me, that means a certain level of vulnerability and kind of being myself with people, um, talking a little bit about my struggles and my stuff and, and being a little more open than, than one kind of characterizes a typical judge, I would think. Um, but it's about them understanding that we are here, one, to hold you accountable. This has to stop. This has to change. Nobody makes the mistake of thinking we're not doing that, but two, we're here to support and um, we're here to see you live your best life, right? And then one of the byproducts is that of that is a, I never, ever, ever use shame as a tool. I, there is so much shame and stigma around addiction and mental health uh, challenges in our society. Um, folks are... Folks are deeply, uh, folks who are struggling and have substance abuse issues um, struggle constantly with shame and how they've disappointed themselves and disappointed other people. And I, I say to my folks all the time, I have no shame for you. We're, this, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about fixing what's happening right now. We're going to make a plan. We're going to implement a plan. We're going to get you back on your feet, but do not take any shame from me. Um, and I've had to learn that. I've had to learn that from treatment providers and people who are a lot smarter than me, um, that, that shame just has no place there. Uh, it, it just opens people up to all that old trauma, all that old, it, it just takes people in a really bad direction. Yeah, no, that's, that's very thoughtful. Uh, now, I think one thing that sometimes comes up is people who may say that, well, if someone can't stop drinking or doing drugs or whatever substance they're they're using or issues they have, it's their fault. Why should we, why should we be spending taxpayer dollars on them to help them? What are your thoughts on that? Right. Um, Yeah, you hear that quite a bit. And and that goes back to the kind of... um, some of that is uh, addiction is a character issue. You're a bad person. That's why you're. That's why you're doing this. Um, we should write you off. Um, we know that that there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of adverse childhood experiences. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into uh, folks who are struggling. Right. Um, even wash that all off to the side. Right. Just. Forget about that. Um, it costs in Minnesota, I haven't looked at the, stud, the statistics in the last couple of years, but it costs maybe $33,000, a year to lock somebody up. And we know that when they come out of being locked up, they're worse, right? By and large, they're worse. They're, it's harder to get a job. Um, you probably haven't dealt with your substance issues abuse issues, all your connections are broken, um, your mental health may be better, worse, same. Um, my program costs about 5000 per client, 
Right. Um, and we achieve uh, a, a, our graduation rate in this really tough program for really high risk, high need people is about 90%. You know, we have phenomenal results. Um, our recidivism is the lowest in the state, period. Um, and one of the lowest in the nation. So throwing, setting aside all the kind of moral and questions and uh, all of that, it makes really, really, really good sense to do this intervention as opposed to another intervention that doesn't have near the outcomes that we have, right? Yeah, um, another stat I'll throw you at you, in Minnesota, about 20% of the people who need treatment, maybe even less, uh, whether it's mental health or, or chemical dependency, can get treatment. We are we are woefully underfunded and uh, not providing treatment resources. And treatment is always going to be a cheaper response than than a whole host of other responses. If I can get somebody living in recovery, the financial benefit to society is is profound. You know, somebody who's getting a job and working and paying taxes and buying a house, buying, you know, win, 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 win for them, win for public safety, win for the taxpayer. Um, so that this can be a, a really thoughtful way to, to help people get on their feet. That, that makes a lot more sense from just about any way you argue it or look at it. Yeah. That's quite convincing. Would you rather, if you're going to spend money on this person anyway, would you rather spend right. five thousand or thirty-four thousand a year? I think it's a no-brainer to say, right. well, five thousand and have them in treatment is is a lot better to get someone be members of society and functioning again. Um, right, and, right, and there are and there are people. I mean, you know, sad to say, it, there are folks who need to be locked up in our society. Are predatory, dangerous people. Um, but by and large, when we're talking about folks with substance use disorders. Um, mental health issues, um, we can, in, in a huge percentage of, of those lives, we can make a difference if we do it right, if we're thoughtful, if we work hard at it. None of these are simple, easy solutions, um, but we can make a profound difference. And, and again, that's a win for public safety. It's a win for them. It's a win for the taxpayer. Um, it's work. It's, it's hard work. Uh, but but we can make a difference. Yeah, it's that philosophical question of do you punish people or do you try to rehabilitate them into society? Uh, it's interesting because the, what was it? I think it was in the Philippines where the the president came out and made a statement that, you know, those mm -hmm. who use drugs should be killed, literally, which right. I think made waves around the world. Uh, but um, yeah, but anyway, now, I, I want to be thoughtful of, of the time. I know you have a busy schedule today. Um, the We can certainly no, keep going. No, I'm good. You're good, all right. Keep great. going, I'm good. Perfect. If you're good, I'm good. Yeah, no, yes. absolutely. I have time. Now, one important thing is family members and relationships are especially impacted by addiction. Does the court help in, in rebuilding those relationships? Uh, because I know that those are important, and you did touch on that a little bit those healthy relationships are important in keeping us grounded and, and healthy and actually even healing. Right. Right. Um, my answer is yes and no. And it depends on the relationships. 
Um, we've had folks in our court um, who've been uh, physically and sexually assaulted by parents and step-parents. And um, uh, we have folks whose parents are actively using, family members are actively using and have, have no intention of changing behavior. Um, so it isn't automatically uh, a good connection. And so you have to be real thoughtful. I mean, we've had, we've had clients, we regularly have clients where we have to help them do safety planning around chemical use and family events. You're going to your family for Thanksgiving. We know that's a high risk situation because everybody's using, there's violence, there's, you know, that kind of stuff. We'll help you make a safety plan if you want to go. If you don't want to go, we'll support you. If you want to go, we'll support you. Um, and we'll help you make a safety plan to get out of there um, if you need to, or, you know, that kind of stuff. So it can be that you've got to be real careful around family. But the uh, the flip side is that when this works, when, when folks have really healthy family support, it works so much better, right? It's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to to achieve recovery if your family is a mess and using and has a generational history of using and criminality. It's really who do you turn to for how do you build those supports? Um, so healthy family, yeah, we're we're connecting and connecting and connecting. Um, and then folks, folks who have kids and their and their relationships are broken or afraid <laughs> with their kids. We're trying to, we're getting parenting skills. We're um, helping them kind of think about their children as one of the big reasons that they want to live recovery. Um, you know, back to that idea of adherence. Um, I want to be a good mom. I want to be a good dad. And um, substance use and behavior impedes or, or even uh, cuts that off. So here's one of the reasons that I'm going to, I'm going to live in recovery today. I'm going to live abstinent and sober today is this picture of this little girl or this little boy. Um, so those kind of connections can be profoundly um, motivating and helpful for recovery. If you give people support, give them some time, give them some help. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's a very good uh, take on, on that. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't think of uh, that aspect of you. People don't always go back to... The, their previous family relationships uh, were not necessarily good ones. Um, right, I, I know. right, right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, now, do people ever go through a treatment program more than once? Yes, everybody does. Except <laughs> <laughs> for an answer. Um, the research, there's a ton of research about that, and, and you can find all kind of different numbers. One uh, study I saw is that on average, people go through about nine, nine treatment um, wow. interventions before achieving kind of long-term sustained recovery. Um, we um, we tend to think, you know, watch folks for maybe ninety-five uh, percent uh, of folks in recovery uh, say that they've used had relapses in the first five years of recovery. Um, so it's a long-term, you know, we, 
I start to breathe a little bit easier when folks are at about five or six years. Um, it's a long, long battle, you know, and, and you know, it's just like anything else. I mean, if somebody's got heart disease and trying to change everything, um, it doesn't happen in 10 days or within 30 days of the diagnosis. You, it's a long-term process and we don't give up on you because you snuck a donut in the middle of the night. You know, we, we keep working and we keep working and, and you know, you know how folks have to really break it down and really work to make significant life changes. And just like, you know, heart disease, diabetes, um, substance abuse is one of those uh, big, if, if you're one of my folks, one of my high risk, high need folks, it's a, it's a long, long, long challenging work um, to, to make that happen. So, yeah, that's a long answer, but yes, people go through treatment a bunch of times. And it's a, you know, it's finding the right treatment connection. Not every treatment works for everybody. You know, um, it, it, you can look around and find a lot of different ways. And some people are just going to be in a, in some sort of treatment connection or certainly sobriety support or recovery support, uh, relapse prevention for a very long time and even for the rest of their lives. You know, it, it, you, you don't um, take insulin for 60 days and then stop. You know, you don't get on your exercise bike, bike for 90 days and then stop. You're good. Uh, you, keep, you keep needing to, to make this about lifestyle and the way you live and the way you um, connect with the world. Yeah, that's uh, I've heard some numbers in the past. I think it was seven, but nine. That's that's a really shocking st- statistic. But but yeah. you know, it it sounds like it's a process, not just a one time thing. Uh, what, what exactly? Think, what are some of the things that could cause someone to to relapse? Oh, it can be any number. It that's fascinating to me. You know, there's a million ways to to achieve recovery. There's a million ways to relapse. Um, and it, and everybody thinks it's always, you know, I think we tend to think, oh, it's a bad thing. Um, your, your old bad friends came around with meth or with beer or whatever, and kind of cajoled you into drinking absolutely or using absolutely happens all the time. Um, but it can be, it can be, um, I'm doing really well. I've, 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 I've seen a number of folks who've achieved really neat stuff in, in their recovery a year in, two years in, three years in and say, you know, I think I can probably handle a beer or two. It's the, it, it, it's a, um, it's kind of a, things are going really well, so I'm good. And then slip back in, um, and struggle relapse, um, situations, um, driving by someplace you used to use, um, stumbling into a a context that kind of surprises you and people are using wedding reception. You know, there's, there's a million different ways that people can be triggered to, to use again. And it's really, and that's their work, right? They've got to start thinking about that's what treatment is really about. It's giving you skills and insight in order to live right? And carry it all the way through, carry it for years and decades. But as part of their treatment, as part of their recovery, part of their work, 
they've got to be thinking about those triggers and, and what what is it that might catch them by surprise? And then what's your plan? How do you react? What do you do? Um, yeah. You know, and if you're, you know the deal, if you're trying to get in shape um, and you've been exercising and doing well and eating well, and then you've got a bad day or a down day or you're tired or you're sad, um, that ice cream looks pretty darn good. Yeah. You know, so you've even got to guard your emotions and your, it's, it's a challenge. It's a 24-7 thing. It's not a, a one and done, you know. Same kind of stuff that we all struggle with. You know, I know on Friday nights, I am tired. I've had my court all day. I've been all week. Um, I can eat like an idiot, you know, because I'm tired and I want to reward myself and I'm not vigilant. And um, I know that on Friday nights, I might have that fourth piece of pizza or whatever, you know, and I'm not trying to trivialize addiction by comparing it to pizza. I get it, but it's, it's, I'm tired. I'm worn down. I feel like I need a little reward, a little pick me up. We all do it one way or another, you know, whatever it is, whether it's pizza or, um, you know, whatever you got, some, there's something that, that's yeah. there. Yeah. It looks like a, a get lot the work out. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of things in life are about trial and error. And, and the, the quote yeah. from Thomas Edison comes to mind uh, where he says that, <clears throat> excuse me, I have not failed. I've found 10,000 ways that won't work when he was trying yeah. to <laughs> invent the light bulb. Now, do you yeah. have any memorable? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, do you have any memorable moments um, or success stories of people overcoming addiction that you can share? You know, I've got hundreds. I really do. Um, and that I talked earlier about. You know, we got to pay attention to the wins, and it's easy. You know, our our mindset is kind of negative. We tend to notice negative things or dangerous things or sad things and attribute patterns to them. But we we need to be aware that there's so many good things. I have a I have one client. I did uh, their wedding a couple weeks ago. Um, her name's Debbie, and she lets me use her name. Um, she came into our court a complete mess, um, and she's shared her story. She talks about her story. I have. I have, um, I, I can share this story. Um, she was uh, losing her kids. Um, she was uh, profoundly impacted by her uh, uh, addiction and um, was really running out of hope. Um, got arrested a couple times, really back to back, got into our court and um, started in the same way everybody else does, heavy monitoring, uh, treatment, et cetera. Um, and she just took off a slow takeoff. I don't, it's not an easy quick fix, but, um, over a couple of years, she has gone and gotten her nursing degree. Um, she was the first person in her graduating class to get a real nursing job. Um, she has full custody of her kids. Um, she just got married a few weeks ago. Um, she speaks all around the community. She's spoken down in the cities to over 400 people about her recovery and um, what she's done. She gets letters from people she used to know saying, um, you are you are an inspiration. Um, her daughter sent us a card, our team a card, a couple of years ago that says, um, thanks for helping my mommy. I love you. Um, I took that card and had it framed, and it sits on our wall. 
Um, you can't get in to, to do this work on my team without going by her daughter's artwork and being reminded that there are mommies and daddies and boys and girls who, who need our help. Um, so it's, it's just, it's a profound privilege to watch her living her life and then um, have the kids stop by and see the picture and show their, you know, they bring relatives in and show Maddie will show people the artwork and stuff. And um, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, she is, she is living a beautiful, beautiful life. And when we came into contact with her, she was a mess. It was, it was broken and everything was broken. So, yeah. And I've, there's hundreds. I mean, you know, we, this is what we see. This is what we tend to see. It's not that she's kind of a extraordinary success story. It's that, yeah, that's, that's what happens when people find that connection and, and life starts working. Yeah. I think it's, it's, must be awfully rewarding uh, to to see something like that to see that you made a difference in someone's life who may have been written off by by society uh, and uh, you certainly I'm sure see people also at their lowest points in their lives uh, does that right. ever get to you oh yeah <laughs> that's why I ride the bike <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's, you, you're aware there's a ton of research and thinking about vicarious trauma and the idea that even in even in interacting with and, and listening to people's stories and, and feeling empathy, you know, you can't you can't do this work without some level of empathy. Um, you still have to have separation. You've got to have separation. Or you're going to tip over. But, you know, empathy and humanity and compassion and um, rooting for people, uh, the the sad stuff and the bad stuff hurts. Um, so yeah, you've got to have a strategy for taking care of yourself and making sure that you're healthy and connected and doing all the right things. And that's a day in and day out struggle too. You know, that's never a easy fix. Um, but yeah, you're impacted by the successes and you're impacted by the the struggles as well. Yeah, we're human beings. We 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 do feel things. Uh, the right, you know, and I think that I thought about that that question because my my wife used to work for uh, for uh, ARC, the American Refugee Committee, and they do work in, mm. in countries where people have been affected in tra- with trauma wars and people who have been abused yeah. or raped and and seen their parents killed in front of them. And she was yeah. telling me about how the therapist talking to these people and hearing these stories day in and day out just start being affected by these things that they hear yes. and see because they can't get it out of themselves and and how they have to find a way to mitigate that that uh, almost you know think you know the trauma that they they get from helping others so um, absolutely so. absolutely and you've got to have a strategy it's not just going to happen yeah 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 no, that makes sense now what can we do as a society to break the cycle of substance abuse and isn't is that even realistic? <laughs> that's the that's the billion dollar question. Um, and and my answer and it sounds it sounds just dumb. It sounds so big and and crazy that it just sounds dumb. Is that we have to figure out how to raise children, raise little people who become big people who don't thirst for substances. 
Um, and then that's a conversation about all the, all the harmful things that can happen to kids as, as little ones, neglect, abuse. Um, there's a study, I referred to it a little bit kind of vaguely before. It's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study out of Kaiser Permanente that's been going on for 25, 30 years. And it, it tracks the number of adverse childhood experiences that a child has. And their neglect, divorce, parent with substance abuse, parent in, in prison, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, it's a, it's a 10 point scale that's easily found on the internet and taken. And the more, the more boxes you check and you don't want to check boxes because they're bad things that happen to you as a child, the more likely you are to have a whole host of problems downstream in your life. And it's not just substance abuse, it's disease, it's um, living in violent situations. It, it turns out that no surprise um having really bad childhood experiences makes you an incredible risk for bad adult experiences um a quote that a, a friend of mine uses all the time is that hurt people hurt people um we we revisit and we are re-victimized um so how do we raise kids um who don't have these experiences what do we do as a society to embrace and and support kids and families and people struggling how do we intervene early how do we connect um and those are big 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 questions right i mean you start talking about poverty and opportunity and um racism and uh, wow um, but the answer the answer lies um the answer lies in how do we raise healthy, connected people, right? Healthy, connected people. Even if, you know, even if you could, it isn't the substance. Do I want heroin to stop being available on our streets? Absolutely. Heroin, et cetera. Alcohol and cigarettes kill an incredible number of people in our society every year, right? Um, but fundamentally, it's how do we, how do we, raise kids and people who who don't have um, pain and trauma issues and aren't looking for painkillers um, and that, those are big questions and there are there are good interventions there's an intervention called preventure out of Canada and um, London and it's becoming international that uh, looks to identify kids uh, maybe in the fifth sixth seventh eighth grade and identify high-risk kids, kids who are likely to have substance abuse issues, and give them some tools. It's a simple little 90-minute intervention, workbook intervention that the teachers can do. Um, give them some tools to manage the risk factor that they present with. So if you're a sensation-seeking kid like I was, that's one of the four categories. They're going to give you some skills. They're not going to say, you know, you're a bad kid and you're likely to do drugs, blah, blah, blah. They're going to give you some skills to manage your sensation seeking. Um, if you're a, a forlorn, hopeless, isolating kid, uh, and I don't mean hopeless, you have a hard time seeing hope in, in your worldview. Um, they're going to give you some skills to try to help you manage that as you move through school and life. So 
it's a real neat little intervention. And what it's showing is down the road, those kids are much less likely to use substances early and risky, et cetera. There are interventions that we can do that help kids manage so that they can do better. And the really fascinating thing about Preventure is that in a typical school, in a typical cross-section, it'll be about 40% of the kids that that you'd identify in in the high-risk categories and and do the intervention with. You don't do anything with the other 60%, leave them alone. But the school, the high-risk kids are, are doing less risky behavior downstream. It's an intervention that works. And the low-risk kids see the same drop. Um, They call it the herd effect. Turns out if you intervene with the high-risk kids, the low-risk kids are getting some some benefit too because the high-risk kids aren't leading the charge as hard. Um, It's a fascinating intervention that causes very little. And I'm trying to get our schools to adopt it up here, but I keep knocking on the door and I can't get... I can't get anybody to jump on it, but that's a long answer. But but the answer is one, we raise kids who don't thirst, and two, we try and figure out who's at risk, and then we give them some tools um, to to and connection and involvement, sports, um, after school, extracurricular, get them involved, get them connected with healthy people and healthy things, so that. Uh, substance abuse doesn't become problematic and we've got to watch kids in that adolescent age when they're learning 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 because you don't want them to be learning 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 substance abuse or risky behavior right you want to you want to protect them and and guard them and keep them with healthy connections while that brain's developing right you're much less likely to develop a substance abuse problem if you have your first beer at 22 versus your first beer at 11, right? So if I, if we can get your brain developing and, and get you, keep you connected and moving downstream, um, your risk goes down and down and down just through the passage of time. Yeah, it always comes down to how much work are we willing to do uh, in, in to get in front of the issue. Uh, it, it's you know, right. kind of like the whole national con- conversation we're having here in the United States about uh, the use of naloxone, which is a uh, an injection right. that can be given to people who are about to who, or who overdose, um, and I know some schools are starting to actually pay out of their own pocket to carry it to to prevent. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's I think you're right. It's a very complicated question. Um, probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, and we tend to be responsive. You know, we're reactionary, and um, we deal with things after bad stuff has happened as opposed to doing the the hard it's a big hard work to think about preventing um and and really changing the way the way that we the way that we do things there's a i have a let me tell you share a a a story with you um it's um i got it and I, i use it with permission from a gentleman named don coyhas who's a uh uh uh, native elder, and um, he tells the story of the three sisters. Um, and the three sisters walk to a um, walk up to a river and uh, see uh, babies in the water drowning and dying. Um, the first sister jumps in and starts pulling babies out, dragging babies out as fast as she can, and she yells at her sisters, "Get in and help!" 
And the second sister looks and says, you know, if I could teach kids to swim, they could start swimming and start helping other kids too. So she jumps in and she starts helping to, to teach kids to swim. Um, so the kids can start saving themselves and saving others and getting out. But the first two sisters are just overwhelmed. They're not. And the third sister is standing there and they yell, get in, get in, get in. And instead she turns and starts running and they're shocked. Why would she run away? Doesn't she see the, it turns out she was running upstream to figure out who was putting babies in the water in the first place and whether she could stop it. Um, and I think that's a, it's a beautiful story, uh, a, a beautiful teaching tool about um, we need to do it all, but but we need to also be, we really need to be sending people um, and communities upstream to figure out why we have babies in the water. Um, and, and, you know, most of my work is I'm sister one or sister two, I suppose, sometimes. Um I really hope there are, are, are a million sister threes uh, working upstream in our in our culture to to change these realities, you know, and bring communities together. I've seen incredible responses across the nation. Um, communities that are stopping gun violence, or you know, they've got effective, thoughtful policing, but they also have community engagement that's getting out and and bringing connection and community um, where it's needed to try and try and make changes. Um, we, we, it, it's a, it's a big problem. So it's going to take big solutions, but we've got to be going upstream. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. Now, what yeah. advice would you give to someone who is struggling with addiction? Uh, whatever that may be, uh, maybe they are on a path to, perhaps about landing in a treatment court or even in jail, or maybe they're just in denial. You know, again, there are a million ways to, to um, a million ways to, to find abstinence and move into to recovery and, and successful living. So I, I would, I would tell them, um, don't isolate. Uh, don't don't continue to hide from healthy people and healthy things and, and reach out. And then just, you're going to have to take some help. Nobody does this on their own, typically. Um, so you're going to have to have, the opposite of addiction is connection. So you're going to have to find connection. And it can't be the people you're using with, you know, that's not a community that, that um, restores one another, right? Um, you're going to have to get help and, and figure out your path. And then, you know, then maybe you can help the folks in your using community who want to get out and get free too. Um, but I'd be, I'd be encouraging them to just look and look and look for resource. And um, if you try one thing and it doesn't work for you, uh, try another thing. You're going to find 10,000 things that don't work, as you said, um, until you find the, the thing that does. But you're going to have to you have to reach out and you're going to have to find a path that works for you. Um, knock on doors and knock on doors and knock on doors. It, it, white knuckling it on your own generally isn't real successful. Can be for some people. I'm not saying that. But if it's not successful, then, then you've got to escalate your 
escalate your attempts and reach out and reach out and reach out. Now, I would probably ask the, a similar question for family members and friends who maybe they're just they're about to give up and and uh, right. trying to cut their, themselves out of the life the life of a uh, you know, right. person who's affected right and that that is a, a incredibly difficult line to walk right um you know we throw around ideas of of codependence and enabling and we certainly see that um i have a gentleman in my court right now that nine times out of ten when when he's using when he's relapsing it's he's with family um family is the problem right um so there's that so you can certainly be enabling and and all of that but then you hear the other quote tough love we're going to cut you out we're going to close it off and that sometimes that's appropriate too right there's just so much um, you know, there can be violence, there can be um, stealing or unsafe things happening, and you've got you've to take care of yourself first. You can't take care of somebody else if you can't take care of yourself. Um, but it's, when I've seen it done well, I've seen it this, this um, there's, a, there's at least an open window um, or maybe an open door with conditions where we're family doing it well says we are always here for you um but here are the lines we will not cross and you will not cross with us or or our loved ones either and they're real upfront spoken they're not kind of passive aggressive or hidden and then popping out it's here's the lines you're not going to cross and we're not going to cross but you got to know that we are here for you and we will do this or that or this or that i will drive you to uh, a meeting any day, you know, when I'm any time I'm not working, I will drive you to a meeting and I will wait in my car outside for you or, you know, stuff like that. So it's finding that kind of keeping the connection alive and open, but but still having that doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. That doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. It doesn't mean that you start uh, being in danger or, you know what I'm saying? It's that it's that balance of connected, but, but strong. Um, and, and, you know, when I see, when I see families start coming in, I'll regularly get families coming into court. Um, and with them, with my folks, right. And at first it's often, I got to drive him cause he doesn't have a license. Dang it. Um, and then later it becomes judge. I want to tell you about how, how he's doing and what we're seeing and we are seeing some beautiful living and when you start seeing families who who suffered right along with their kid or their husband or father or grand you know they've suffered through this thing too and when you start seeing families who are starting to believe again right and starting to see beautiful living um then you know that boy we've got some traction here right um, we can see more broadly that, that these folks are, are really gaining ground when, when family is starting to smile and see some hope and see some life, you know? Yeah. Now, do you ever have a day when you you doubt your ability to, to make a difference? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And, and 
and I, those days are unpredictable. They're usually around, um, quote unquote failure. You know, every now and then I've got to send somebody to prison. Um, somebody who I've known for a year or two years, I've met their family. I maybe know their kids a little bit. Um, it can be so profoundly sad. Um, it, I, I think you got to recognize it and see it. And then you've got to also step back and look at the Debbies and look at all the other things and never give up. I mean, just because I've sent some, I've had several people who I've sent to prison who I had a guy come in yesterday who I sent to prison. He's come in just to visit a couple of times on Fridays. Um, he's, he's no longer on probation. He's served his time and he stops in just to say hi. Um, and as far as I can tell, well, I know he has no new arrests or no new trouble. So, you know, there can be hope down the road too. So you gotta, you gotta celebrate the victories and, and don't, don't, um, kind of embrace the darkness and suck it down too deep because it can, it can wipe you out. Yeah. How do you, how do you do, how do you deal with that? What, what do you do to recenter yourself and what do you um, do I take I take good care of myself. Um, I I pay a lot of attention. You know this. I mean, I pay a lot of attention to to my my um, exercise and being outside. And um, I I have a kind of a meditative uh, ritual, uh, stretching and meditation that I do every single day. Um, I do journaling. To, and I do a gratitude journal to remind me each day what I'm grateful for. Um, and then I, I try to practice uh, mindfulness and presence. I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who, you know, you meet people who kind of live in the past and they're always kind of chewing over what happened yesterday or the day before or back in the day. Um, or you meet people who are kind of future oriented what's next what's going to be or oh i'm afraid of that coming down the line i tend to be a future oriented guy i'm always thinking what's next what can i do where will i go um and i've had to learn to kind of um, be more present and be available um there's a harvard prof named ellen lang uh ellen langer who talks about active noticing um so i've had to learn to be mindful and present each day um, and one of my mantras is today. I'm just going to do today. I'm going to be, I'm going to give you, you know, if you've got 30 cases coming in, I had a case um, Tuesday morning that came in for a plea. It was a kid on a second time DWI. Um, I had a bunch of hearings lined up and it would have been really easy to just kind of blow through it because second time DWI. He lives uh, in the cities. I'm never going to see him again. I'm going to sentence him and off you go. And and he started describing what happened. He was arrested at 0.31, almost four times the legal limit. He's in his early 20s. All my alarm bells start going off as a judge and as a dad and as a community member. Um, his mom and dad were there. I called his mom up. I talked to his mom. I probably took 20 minutes with this kid um, because I was present and I knew that he's in a world of hurt um, and he's got to make 
serious intervention, serious changes right now, or he's going to die or he's going to kill somebody, right? Um, so even though he's going, he lives down in the cities, normally it's going to be supervised down there. I'm like, I want to see you back in 60 days, buddy. And we're going to engage and we're going to connect and I'm going to monitor this and you're going to do it right or I'm going to be all over you. Um, and if you do it right, I will, I will celebrate and champion with you louder than anybody, anybody in the, in the system will. Um, but what I did was I was mindful enough and present enough to see that that moment needed more. And if I'd have robbed that moment by worrying about the next moments or the next cases, um, I wouldn't have done what I could, everything I could there. I've got a buddy who's a judge in, in Michigan, wonderful guy. And, you know, he says on the days when you've got 40 files and, and 40 people and your staff is all bothered because we have so much, he'll say, well, let's just do this one. And then when this one's done, we'll do the next one. Um, and so, that's a long answer, but I think it's about being present and mindful and being right there. I don't want to be yesterday. I don't want to be tomorrow. I don't want to be right there. And that's my work. And that's, I'm certainly doing that more with my family and my children than I, than I ever did when, when I was much younger. Um, that's one of my big regrets. And that's one of the things I'm trying to fix is to be present with my kids. You know, when, when the, 16 year old wants to talk that is the time to talk doesn't matter what's on dad's list doesn't matter what's coming next we're this is the moment that he's chosen and therefore it's the moment that 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 i'm choosing to right i'm not saying i'm perfect at it but it sure helped me think a lot about life is the idea of being mindful and present no, I definitely identify with that. I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, and an 8-year-old. And getting those teenagers to talk to you is it's on their own time. And it's like pulling teeth, just trying to connect with them. So, I, you know, we try to do weekly, you know, family game nights and try to sit around the table and try to have a meal together and connect. Um, but I think that, yeah, that presence, you know, uh, compassion, mindfulness that you mentioned not something that most people would think about when they think about the courts and, and treatment courts in right. general. Right. But I think we need more of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, now, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about all this. And oh, my pleasure. Time. My pleasure. Um, the questions are fantastic. I told you that in the email where you put a bunch of work into thinking this through. It's, it's really, really incredible. Yeah, no, thank you. I've had the pleasure to sit in a, a treatment court to watch just the interactions, you know, mm -hmm. people coming in front of a judge and saying, you changed my life, you, yeah. know, you saved my life by putting me in this treatment program and I'm a better person because of you. Yeah. And I'm sure you hear that all the time, and yeah. people coming back and telling you that. Yeah, and truth is they're a better person because they found their way and they found yeah. that um, internal motivation and then they did the hard work to... You know, we we kind of get to be there and create the opportunities, but the magic is inside that person. You know, it's not it's not my magic or the team's magic or treatment's magic. It's, we're gonna we're gonna give you some opportunity and then watch you watch you shine and live. You know, it's a it's a you it's just profound. It's a incredibly humbling. Um, I mean, I, 
very grateful for the work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any final words of wisdom you would like to share? You know, I guess where I go is is, and it's it's themes that that we've already talked about. It's this idea that we need to we need to let go of the shame. Um, I always tell folks, you know, I don't have any rocks to throw at you. Look at my hands, they're open. Um, we, we need as a culture and as a people to understand that, that um, these are not shameful things. They're, they're, they are issues that are serious and profound, that we've got to work together um, long-term to solve. But it's not, it's not shameful to have a mental illness. It's not shameful to, to struggle with uh, substance abuse. No more that it's shameful to have um, heart disease because you haven't lived a, a really healthy lifestyle or diabetes because you haven't lived a really healthy lifestyle or genetic or whatever the reason. So we need to we need to figure out as a culture how to let go of, of shaming folks and, and uh, moralizing and uh, attributing bad or evil or or. Uh, nefarious character to folks who struggle like this and then we need to open up resources if only you know if only 20 percent or fewer folks can get the help they need um, we've really got to think about how to how to open up resources and then finally we got to figure out how to be the third sister and and work our way upstream and and change these trajectories when people are itty bitty little folk that 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 we need to protect and connect with. Those are big. Yeah, no, those are big, big concepts. But you know, if you want wisdom, that's what I got. Is this is a this is a big deal, and we've got to, we've got to work hard. Yeah, yeah. Now I know you do sometimes public speaking. Yeah. You, you like to share the message of positivity and and everything that you talked about here. Now, where can people get in touch with you in case they want to hear from you or even have you come at an event or maybe a, a court somewhere? Or... Yeah, and that, I'm not very good at that in terms of, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm good at public speaking. I'm hard to get a hold of. <laughs> you know, judges don't kind of, um, I tried having a website for a couple of minutes and that didn't work very well. Um, but let me give you my probably the best way is just my email umar and it's um sean r flurky so s-h-a-u-n-r-f-l-o-e-r-k-e at gmail.com and maybe you can hang it there and folks can get a hold of me um i don't do facebook um so i'm, I'm not a good i'm not a good social media guy my instagram consists uh, almost exclusively of pictures from my biking, <laughs> you know, um, my Twitter is usually my, my Strava showing that I wrote at negative 18 or negative 24 or whatever. So I'm, I'm not real good at kind of the promotional side, but the, the Gmail is a great way to get a hold of me if people want to. Yeah, no, understandably. I think you're, um, miles ahead of, of other churches and, in terms of what you do, and uh, yeah, I, it's understandable that you don't have a, a presence online. That's completely okay. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, I'll certainly put this in in the show notes of this episode so people can can email you and reach out to you. 
yeah to talk about this particular episode or anything else yeah i'd be glad to and there's and there's a lot of judges out there doing this and thinking this way and having profound impact um i got a big mouth so i tend to you know people i kind of say what i think and and so I, i maybe get a little bit more press or a little bit more but there's there's so many people working so hard at this um it's really impressive yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I second that. I think I've seen it. I've, I've been, like I said, sit, sit, sat on courtrooms where all the judges were doing, you know, similar th- work that you're doing. Yes. And uh, it's, you know, they, they are focused on helping people rather than, than you know, you, you know, be voicing their opinions, and which I, I think is, is a good thing. But I, I think also people need to hear it from, from, from judges and from those who work in the treatment facilities and the courts. That, right. What we do really matters, and we, we we are trying to change people's lives. Right, right, so, right. Well, great. Well, Judge Sean Florky, thank you very much for for doing this interview. Uh, I know we went a little long uh, or a lot long, but uh, <laughs> sorry, this, this is super important. <laughs> I got a big uh, no, no, I, no. I, I <laughs> no, no. I think this is good. People need to hear this. This is probably going to be a you know the longest episode I've done, but it. It's good stuff. People need to hear this. And there are millions and millions of people around the world that struggle with this. Oh, and yeah. they need to know that you can get out of this. Yeah. So. Yeah. There is hope. There is a lot of hope. Yeah. Well, thank you. This right. has been a, a privilege. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. Well, yeah. Thank you very much. We will, I'm certain we'll, we'll stay in touch. Yes. And, uh, yes. And in the future. That was my interview with Judge Florkey. During the interview, I could feel his passion, his excitement, and his willingness to make a difference in people's lives. So thank you, Judge Florkey, and all those within our justice system and treatment facilities for all the work that you do to help people put their lives back together. Now, I don't want to drag this much longer than the podcast has already been, but I think the key message from this interview is that no matter how bad things seems to be, don't give up on yourself and certainly don't give up on those around you who are struggling with addiction. We all go through tough times in our lives and uh, no one is immune. It could happen to anyone. So just keep that in mind as you go forward. And as you've heard here on the podcast from George Florkey, the isolation can make things worse and cause people to continue some pretty destructive behaviors. And this doesn't even have to be specifically related to addiction. It could be something, some harmful behavior, maybe the people you hang out with, maybe something you do in your life and you're trying to quit. Don't isolate yourself. Talk to someone and get help. I put some links in the show notes for this podcast so that you can talk to someone. There are people out there who really want to help. They are not trying to shame you. They don't care who you are. They don't care where you're from, the color of your skin and what you look like. They really, truly want to help you. They want you to be the best version of yourselves, which is why I'm, I'm doing this. I want you to understand that you are not alone. So the worst thing you can do is isolate yourself, thinking that you can do this on your own. There's no shame in, in asking for help and, and getting someone to give you a hand so you can, again, be the best version of yourself. So you can be proud of yourself. So your family can be proud of you. But mostly do it for yourself. Is this really the person you want to be? And if you are a family member or a friend of someone who is struggling with this, can you do better? Can you help them do better? Can you help them get help?
Alright, that does it for today and if you found this episode helpful, share it with someone you think could use some positivity in their life and thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I truly appreciate you and as always, please stay safe and motivated. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Motivational Voice Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate it on iTunes. Get show notes and the latest blog posts at omarjang.com.